from Wrap Your Head Around Silks. So this is the Expecting Aerialist podcast. We have our second co-host, Bean. Say hi. It's my toy. You've got your toy? You've grown up quite a bit, haven't you? We went on a plane. Did you get on an airplane? We got gummy bears and goldfish. Yeah, we had gummy bears and goldfish when we were on the plane. <laughs> Hope you guys are doing really well. Oh, and she wore her mask diligently um my friends uh hope you're having a a wonderful start to your week so um just before we start if you check the show notes uh aerial rehab is coming out very soon the free three-part video series geared towards aerialists coming back to their practice yeah and then, of course, the, the the mini course by Wrap Your Head Around Silks. Go ahead and check it out there. I've got my flagship course there, too, if you are looking for a fully comprehensive beginner to intermediate mm. online aerial course that you can take anywhere in the world. It's all um, videos, all like super specific stuff. So uh, check that out on the website there, too. And uh, today we have, oh, hold on, please. Today we have Nina Sandberg. She's actually an old no. friend of mine. Yeah, come here. Yeah, I hadn't seen her in like 10 years and we ran into each other. She came to take my class. She had already had her daughter. Hey, her daughter's four years old now. And uh, she was explaining to me her process of finding a surrogate and deciding to go no. that direction. No. No? Okay, let's just finish the recording, Okay. Yeah, so Nina, um, Nina talks about her journey Nina. in finding a gestational surrogate to have her second child after two really hard losses. And um, yeah, this is a great story. And uh, I'm so excited for you guys to meet her. Let's get started. All right, podcast listeners, this is Nina Sandberg. Say hi, Nina. Hi. Yeah, she is in the Bay Area, correct? Yes, I live in Oakland in the East Bay. Yeah, you're my second Oakland uh, aerial mama in like a month. I don't know. It's just that that Oakland vibe, I guess. Um, so Nina and I have actually known each other for quite a long time. We had the same dance mentor. Uh, I've, I've had a bunch of dance mentors. One of them, her name is Katy Jean. And uh, I took class with this uh she's amazing modern and ballet dancer dance teacher choreographer and um we met by taking her class yes she is amazing um you know actually we met by taking her class but also you taught for her when she was away for the summer so i kind of met you by taking your class and i also kind of put you in that same category of amazing mentors um that i i feel like i you know, early on in my, I was quite young and impressionable at that time. And you guys definitely made like a huge impression on me. So um, that's something I remember very vividly about that summer. I, I guess, I guess you're right because I was teaching at the studio called, oh my God, I'm losing it. Zeal. Zeal in yeah. LA. It was in Santa <laughs> yep. Monica and I would cover 
Tati's classes. I would teach mm-hmm. them while she was out of town. But then I went on to partner with her in the show called La Fleur de Sens. La Fleur de Sens. It's mm-hmm. a French cabaret show. One of the best shows mm-hmm. I've ever been a part of. Ever. Yeah. Like creatively, the the show is just magnificent, magnificent and magical. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we that 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 journey was like like an eight year journey for me. And I I knew you through a lot of that. And then you, you like opened your wings, (laughs) you opened your wings and you flew into the world and then you traveled a lot. And basically Nina showed up at my aerial class about a couple months ago and I hadn't seen her in 10 years. She only started doing aerial after I had known her. Me too. Mm-hmm. I started mm-hmm. way after that. So she yep. has an aerial practice. She traveled the world. She since then had a kid. So you're pregnant mm-hmm. and had a kid. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, I've been listening to your podcast. I was like, oh my God, somebody <laughs> I know listens to my podcast. No, I'm kidding. But yeah. you know, like I, I just don't, like I don't expect my friends to listen to it. But she had been listening and she said, you know, I'm going through a journey myself and I think maybe I'd like to share about it when the time becomes right. And so I said, yeah, please jump on. So Nina, basically you got pregnant. You're, mm-hmm. you, you're in the Bay area with your partner. And then, mm-hmm. um, yeah, tell me about, tell me about anything with the pregnancy that stands out to you. Or yep. uh, for fourth trimester, getting used to being a mom, anything yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so I, um, when, I don't know how this happened, but like we kind of just made this loose agreement that we were going to like go for a baby. And it was like, okay. And I was like, that's going to take a while because you hear all these stories. It's all going to take a while. But like, it didn't take a while. It like, it was like three weeks later, I was pregnant. And I was like, oh my God. Like, so I was not mentally prepared at the time I was 30. I was actually 33. I was right before my 34th birthday that I got pregnant. I imagined that there was going to be no kids in my life until definitely after 35. So, um, anyway, like freaked out. Um, and I had like very good friends who were already moms talk me off a ledge and be like, you know, (laughs) you have lots of time to get used to the idea. Pregnancy goes by very slowly. So, um, so anyway, kind of, got used to the idea. Um, pregnancy for me was awful. Um, I couldn't train. Um, I couldn't do any aerial. I was very sick for like a very long time. Like, and like, it's weird. Cause I, I think I had like hyperemesis, but I, I didn't ever, I didn't puke. So it's like, it was basically that I just had to spend all day trying not to puke. Like that was my day was what do I have to do to not puke? Um, cause I just felt awful. And um, could you puke if you wanted to? No, I'm not a puker. So I, okay. that's, I like did, I basically, I was like, I did not let myself puke. Um, and so I, I just was miserable for, especially for first trimester, but it didn't really go away. Like I didn't really feel better until I want to say like 18 weeks. Um, I, I was really not good for a long time. And then I, um, I, you know, it's like, as soon as that problem went away, just like more problems arose. Like I had really bad reflux. Um, in general, the pregnancy was healthy. The baby was healthy. There was no complications. Nothing was wrong. Um, but I just felt like a miserable kind of depressed person for the majority of the pregnancy. 
Um, and I, I, so I, because of it, I couldn't really do very much activity. I couldn't get back into training. I remember at around when I started feeling better, I finally went in and, um, uh, tried to do some training and it just did not go well. And I was like, okay, this is not happening. So hence the reason I didn't really start training again until I saw you a few months ago. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah, so eventually, um, she was born. I had a terrible labor and delivery was awful. Um, I had a vaginal delivery, um, and people, you know, supposedly that's like, Oh, well, but you, but you had a vaginal delivery, but it was awful. Um, so a lot of times when I hear people talk about C-sections or being afraid of C-sections, I kind of say like, well, I did it the other way and it was terrible. So I, I think no matter what giving birth from my eyes is just terrible. Um, and so basically what happened with me was that I, um, I had this, it's a long story, but I don't even know how to tell it like in a, in a abbreviated version, but I went, I went way too long at home. I labored at home for too long. I didn't know what I was doing. I was like in transition. I was still in my living room and I, I, we got to the hospital and I was already like 10 centimeters dilated. So meanwhile, I was completely flipped out just because I thought I was like in early labor. Um, and when I got to the hospital, everybody was like, ran around the bed. They checked me. They're like, she's 10 centimeters. They like run me into a room. They're all running around the bed. Everyone's screaming at me to push. And I just like, I just was like a mess. It was exactly the labor I did not want to have. Um, and so eventually I started pushing and pushing just didn't feel good. Like, you know, you hear that the pushing should feel natural and that, you know, you, you know, that's when you get to like take over and have some control did not feel that way at all for me. I was in so much pain. I was trying to push, but every time I pushed it, it felt awful. Like, and the timing of it, like they were like, you have to wait until you have a contraction and then push. And I was like, wait, so you want me to be in terrible pain and then push myself into terrible pain, like even more? Like, what are you talking about? It just felt awful. So I pushed and I pushed and I pushed and three hours went by and nothing was happening. Even though I was like, everyone was like, the baby's right there. We can see her head. You know, everyone's screaming at me. You're so close. And, um, I just, the doctor came in and was like, Nina, like, I really recommend that we give you some Pitocin to kind of strengthen your contractions and get this baby out. And at that point I had no epidural. I had had nothing. And I was like, I will literally die. Like I'd rather be dead than take like more pain right now. So they were like, you can have an epidural. But at that point I was so close to the end that I was like, okay, well, let me just try for like a few more minutes. Then I tried again for like another hour, still nothing. Finally, like after like, I want to, I know this is crazy, but I want to say after like five hours of it, I gave up and was like, please give me an epidural and please give me Pitocin. And from that point onward, everything was fine. So it was like, I kind of like, I got the epidural. They were like, just rest, you know, took an hour, took a break. Um, and then they started me on the Pitocin. I started pushing again. And then from, it was just nice. We played music. We were chatting in between contractions and pushing. It was lovely. And then another hour and 15 minutes of that. And then she was born. Um, so the whole experience of it kind of traumatized me a lot, um, just because I really wanted to go and to just (laughs) get an epidural and I, I just didn't want a stressful labor like that. And it's exactly what I got. Um, and so my body was a mess. I couldn't walk, uh, from all that pushing. I couldn't walk. I felt like, you know, I had basically turned all my all my stuff down there inside out. (laughs) Um, you know, not to mention like the whole pregnancy, all that weight on your pelvic floor. Then I just went and destroyed it with all that pushing. Um, and so fourth trimester for me was awful. Um, it sounds like I hate being a mom, but I love my daughter to death. Um, 
you know, as a person who never was even sure if I wanted kids, I feel like I got the most amazing kid and I'm, you know, I would never, ever change it. But, um, it's just like the fact that I had to have this horrible experience just kind of makes me, it feels pretty spot on for me. Yeah. Um, well, but, mine too. Like uh, I think about the day she was born and I just want to forget about it Oh, because, same. Same. because the experience around it, she's yep. the best thing I've ever had in my life, but it, it's separate. Totally. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. So for, so fourth trimester, I also had a lot of trouble with breastfeeding. Um, like I was not producing a, a good supply. So from like very early on, I was having to supplement. So I was, I like was driving myself crazy. Cause I was like, well, I got to pr- produce as much as I can. So I would like breastfeed and then I would supplement with a bottle and then I would pump like every single feeding. And I was just like driving myself crazy and just didn't sleep well. I was a mess. You know, you have a newborn, they're crying at you all. They're like screaming at you all the time. Like it just, it was a tough, tough time. Um, but I eventually just stopped breastfeeding. Um, I, you know, after three months of killing myself to produce like half of a supply, I, I took myself to just pumping. And then finally at like four and a half months, I just stopped altogether, um, which ended up being such a, such a good thing for me. I, you know, just, I was so scared to do it. And a friend of mine was literally like, just do it. Nina. I do. And you will not look back. I promise you. Cause she had had a different situation, but she stopped breastfeeding somewhere in the first year as well. Um, she had twins and she was just like also driving herself crazy. And so it was just helpful to have like a friend kind of be like, stop, just stop, Nina. (laughs) Okay, I'll do it. So I stopped, um, and ended up being great. And I feel like from my daughter's like, fifth month onward, things were really great. Like I went back to work um, and I was actually so happy to go back. Like it was scary, but I was okay. And she had a nanny and it was like, I had my eight hours a day to go work and be a grown up, and then come home and spend time with her. And it's just, it's been pretty great ever since. Even, even with all the breastfeeding stuff, once I got that out of my head and was just like, just formula feed your child, it's going to be fine. Once I got okay with all that, it's been pretty great, um, you know, ever, ever since with her. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into the, the story about trying for kid number two, uh, shortly, but yeah, that was my experience with my daughter. Wow. You know, it's like doing this podcast. I, we're talking about a lot of women's stories and they're just so diverse. Like mm-hmm. you have the people that are just like birth was orgasmically amazing. <laughs> I wish, man. I wish. I, I wish mean, I was me one too. Me too. Yeah. And it just didn't roll like that. And it's okay. You put it behind you. So, so yeah. Nina. Okay. So, how old is your daughter now? She will be four in October. So she's just over three and a half. Okay. So you're yeah. ahead of me because my bean is going to be three in October. So, yeah. So how far in, like, how long was it until you and your partner decided you wanted to try for a second? So, um, I want to say like, I had my daughter always knowing that if I was going to have one, I would go for two. Like I, I have one brother and I guess I just sort of felt compelled to go for a number two. So I, because I had had such a horrible experience with pregnancy, I like dread it from the moment my daughter was born I was dreading doing it again even though I was like committed to the idea so I didn't feel really ready to go for it again until she was two I'm excited to tell this story because um it's it's pretty terrible but also like we're kind of on a better path now which makes me really happy 
Yeah, yeah. You mean the path to deciding what you were going to do? Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. Like we had to have some pretty terrible stuff happen in order to get me on the path that was right for me. And I'm so happy that we made it eventually. It just, there was a lot of, you know, stuff that went down that was pretty, pretty bad. So, um, so, um, I got, I got pregnant again right away. Um, when we started trying, it's like, same thing. I don't have a fertility problem. (laughs) Um, but I, um, got pregnant again right away and same pregnancy was awful. I was sick, kind of the same, like my first and around, um, 17 weeks, I had some bleeding and some very like light contractions and like a lot of pelvic pain. And I went into my doctor. Um, I was obviously completely flipped out. I went in to see my doctor and the doctor was like, we're going to send you to the hospital. Um, and I was like, okay. So I got to the hospital. They didn't, no one had any idea what was going on. They were like, you have an infection. So there was some kind of infection going on in my uterus. Plus I was having bleeding and I was having small contractions. So, um, uh, an MFM, like a specialist saw me and was like, we're going to put you on a really strong antibiotic and hope that we can kill this infection and that hopefully it's going to be fine. Um, so they did that and I was all hooked up to all these things and not sure what was going on. Am I going to lose the baby? Am I not going to lose? Like just very weird. And then about 24 hours later, I just started having huge contractions. So they sent me to labor and delivery and I basically just miscarried the baby. Um, oh my God. Yep. Um, and so it was really bizarre. They had no idea why no one had, and no one could give me any answers about, they were like, maybe it was this infection. Maybe it was, but they were like, we don't, we really just don't know. Um, and so my, my, you know, obviously I was devastated, but in a lot of ways, it sounds so bad, but like, I was so sick, you know, I was like 17 weeks and I had just been through all, it just, I was uncomfortable. I was sick. I felt awful. I hate pregnancy. I walked out of the hospital feeling like I'm, I was just like, I'm so hungry. Can I just go eat a good meal and enjoy some food for a second? Like I actually felt a little bit relieved in some ways. Cause I just, pregnancy is awful on me. So I was obviously really sad and really bummed out. Um, but the, one of the things they had told me was they were like, you know, it's pr- it was probably a fluke. Like you, you can probably just try again and it'll probably be fine. Um, and that advice like never really sat well with me. Um, like I was like, ugh, but you don't even know what happened yet. You're telling me it was probably a fluke Mm -hmm. and everything would be fine to try again. Like, I don't know. So it it was all just a mess in my head. And I immediately was like, all right, we have to try again. We have to try again. I just have to like move past this and just try again. And you know, it was just, it was just like, it just sucked. Like everything about it sucked. Like everyone around me, like a lot of people knew I was pregnant, right? Cause I was like 17 weeks and people are not used to dealing with like speaking openly and people just don't even know what to say. And they just feel so bad for you. And it's like having all these people around you feeling bad for you. And it just, it's just awful. It was an awful, it was a bad time. Um, and I, you know, I was like, let's just, let's try again. I was like, I'm, I'm good. Like I, 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 what I want is a baby. Like we can be sad about this loss. I'm, I was sad about the loss, but more than ever, I was grateful that I had my daughter, no complications. And I had her in my life. There was no question about whether am I a mother? Am I, you know, like I had my daughter and honestly, without her, it would have been excruciating. Um, so the fact that I, Exactly. So the fact that I had her, I was like, you know what, we're going to move forward. The whole point is we're trying to build our family here. So like, let's continue trying to build our family. So, um, again, two months later after the loss, I, we tried again, I got pregnant again right away. Um, and like, you know, 
I like, this is like the truly awful part of the story. Um, I, uh, started, they monitored the crap out of me because I had the loss, um, the 17 week loss. Um, so they were checking my cervix and they were, uh, doing, they were doing all kinds of stuff. And at around the 16 week mark, they started seeing that my cervix was shortening, um, which basically is a, is an indicator of preterm labor that you could have preterm labor. So they put me on, um, uh, like progesterone suppository, which is supposed to prevent preterm labor, I guess, progesterone, high progesterone helps prevent labor. Um, and then, um, I, I was recommended to have this procedure done called the cerclage, which is where they basically put a, like, like an elastic around your, it's not a, it's a tie, they put it, they tie your cervix closed so that it can't open. So, um, it's, it's a pretty simple procedure. Um, and basically they say that it helps it for people who have a weak cervix, it keeps the cervix closed. So it's like, a, and it's like a surgery. I mean, they have to like put you to sleep and and do it. Um, it's quick and easy, but you know, it was a lot. Um, so I had this procedure done, this cerclage procedure. And then after that, everyone was like, everything's going to be fine. You had the cerclage, like you're good. But I just felt awful. Like at this point I was about 18 weeks and I was like, I do not have a good feeling about this. I already lost one baby and this one is already going South. And like, I just felt so much like I was like this is not going anywhere but everyone around me was like you're gonna be fine like doctors everybody was like this is good we just have to like push through we just have to get you to like the 28 week mark right because in theory babies born after 24 weeks in theory they can survive and be okay but I don't want to I didn't want to I don't want to have the super premature baby you know like I you know it's just anyway it was incredibly stressful I was very scared that I was going to lose it and lo and behold at um I think I was 22. I was 22 weeks. My water broke in the middle of the night, went to the hospital. Yep. Went to the hospital. Um, basically the, so basically had I not, I think the cerclage procedure got me to 22 weeks, but ultimately it was just the same thing that my body just does not want to be pregnant. So, um, so I got to the hospital. No infection quota, air quotes. No infection, infection. no nothing, no nothing. Um, everything was fine. The baby was fine. I'd had it passed, you know, I had even passed the anatomy scan, the 20, the 20 week anatomy scan, all, everything was good. And because I had that cerclage, my cervix was nice and closed, but I just was having contractions and my water broke. And they weren't big contractions. Like I didn't even really know that I was having contractions. They were just little ones. Um, and then, yeah, my water broke. I went to the hospital and I knew, I knew that that was the end of it. Um, because I, you know, I'd been preparing to lose that pregnancy from like the second that I got pregnant. So I spent the whole time just very, very nervous, very, very stressed. It was a really, really tough couple of months. Um, and got there. And of course the, the doctors were like, you know, your water's broken, which leaves you very vulnerable to infection, which is very dangerous to for you. Cause it could go, it could turn septic. Um, and so they were like, we don't think it's a good idea to try to keep you pregnant and try to see how long this baby's going to last. We think it's better to just induce you and let the baby go. Um, and oh, I was goodness. like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was just a sucky situation. And like, when I say this and when people are going to listen to this story, I want everyone to know this is not going to happen to you. Like, this is not going to happen. Like I, this is basically like what everybody fears, right? When they're pregnant and you're just like, terrified you're gonna lose everyone's like you're not gonna lose the baby you're not gonna like i'm literally a medical anomaly like doctors were like we have no idea why this isn't working the 
best explanation I got is that you can have some anatomical reasons that your body just can't hold a pregnancy. And most people have those from like, they know it from their first pregnancy because their first pregnancy doesn't go, go well. But because my first pregnancy was completely fine, they literally have no idea. No idea. Um, so, okay, um, Nina, have you seen the movie... It's with, uh, oh God, see, this is the problem. It's like a light, um, it's like lighthouse and there, there's like a lighthouse and there's a couple living on that small island by themselves. Um, and the woman no, has like so. four miscarriages. I don't think so. No. But in that uh, way, like gets pregnant, okay. like she's showing a little bit. Uh-huh. She, they have to bury four fetuses. And then what happens oh, in the man. movie is that. Uh, a boat washes up on shore with a dead, dead dad and like an alive baby. Whoa. The, I, it was a book first. And basically there okay. was the, like the mainland is very close by. And so the woman goes crazy and decides to keep the child. Okay. And then, but yeah. then the real mom is like very close by looking for her kid for 20 years. Okay. <laughs> interesting anyways anyways no 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 it just made me remind me because the the woman like there was they didn't have a reason she had what i have she just couldn't get the pregnancy couldn't keep the baby for many many times anyways i'm gonna i'm gonna totally find this movie (laughs) i'm gonna google it and then i'm gonna find it anyways yeah Um, so i mean there's a lot of reasons why that could happen in like in like those circumstances but all of those things we've overcome like modern medicine has overcome a lot of reasons why people would lose a baby in second trimester or why babies are born stillbirth like we we've medicine has just come a long way that this stuff is so so rare now um whereas like in the past like yeah it could happen more often because the woman had diabetes or she had preeclampsia or she had um rh factor um like blood incompatibility with the baby like there's all kinds of reasons i think it happened in the past but nowadays it just doesn't happen because we have modern medicine um it just happens to me because i have the wrong anatomy now which i blame on my horrible delivery with my daughter which is why i wanted to talk about um like my delivery experience is that my theory which no doctor has really confirmed is that my body got messed up in that delivery with my daughter um and it is just not going to do so but do you have a theory on how what messed up or no so the best i the best information i got really was that um my so uh so moving along in the story um i eventually went to go see a fertility like an re doctor a, a, um, a reproductive endocrinology and infertility doctor the kind that work at fertility clinics. Um, and I, he, t- you know, told him the whole story and he was basically like, it's, it's anatomical. He, he reassured me that it's anatomical. Um, and he said, and it sucks, but that's what it is. It's just your anatomy. Um, and that's, that's the best answer from a doctor that I ever got. <laughs> so no details, no specifics, but, um, it's just where everything's sitting now is not right. And probably as my uterus grows, it, uh, it, um, puts pressure in the wrong, it, whatever it just, just doesn't work. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's the best. So the other thing that the other thing that goes through my mind when you're telling the story, because I also do not enjoy being pregnant. I have interviewed a bunch of women. They it was they just feel like their best self when they're pregnant, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, hi, uh, Haikui is the one I remember the most that she said that to me, and. 
All I think besides the painful emotional loss is that you just went through 20 weeks of hell mm-hmm. and then you yep. have to grieve. Yep. Yep. No, it was so, um, so the second time was different because I was mentally prepared for, you know, I had been ex- expecting, like I had been very much like this baby. I did. So the way I talked about it with people was different. You know, like I, I didn't talk about as if we were going to be having a baby when I was due. Like I was like, well, maybe we will, you know, because I had had that first loss, I really approached the second one really differently. Um, and that can kind of like, can I lead into the next part of the, oh, the story yeah. or do you, do you want to ask more? Okay. No, so, um, so because I hated pregnancy so much with my daughter, I was always very fascinated by the idea of using a surrogate to, um, to have another baby. Um, and so I, you know, I like kind of joked about it. And I, I think I had known this woman when I was younger who told me the story about how when her older kid was born, it was terrible. And her second kid was born either by adoption or by surrogacy. And she said it was amazing. She just like went for coffee and then went to the hospital and picked up her baby. And I was like, God, that sounds great. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, and I, I had that story in the back of my mind. I was when that, when I worked for that, this woman who told me that story it was many, many years ago, way long before I was ever thinking about having kids, but it was always kind of in, in the back of my head. And when, and having that terrible pregnancy with my, with my daughter. And then after having that first loss, I was like, Oh, I, if I try this again and it doesn't work, I am going to get a surrogate because I am not doing this. Like I, there is an, there is a time where this journey is going to end because I cannot put myself through this anymore. Like, like I will not be trying like 10 more times. Um, it will not be happening. So, um, when, after I lost the first, the first baby, I kind of started to research surrogacy and like even into the second pregnancy, um, I, the second pregnancy that I lost, I was still like researching it and like reading about it and like listening to podcasts about it. And I knew in my head, I was like, if, if I lose this baby, like this is going to be my only path left. Um, and so when I lost that second baby, so I told you the first baby that I lost, I walked out of the hospital being like, I really want to eat. Um, and I was like, I just want to eat a good meal because food hadn't tasted good to me for like months. When I lost the second baby, I walked out of the hospital on a mission to find a surrogate and, and have a baby by a surrogate surrogacy because I had already had that idea in my head. And so I was like both very sad about losing the baby, but I also had a plan. So I'm a very... Um, determined person. So, um, when I was in the hospital, my doctor was not on call. Um, when I lost the second baby, but my doctor called me in the hospital, which was really sweet. And she was like, I am so sorry. I can, I, she's like, I don't even know what to say. I'm here for you, whatever you need. And she said, you know, if you want to talk about trying again, and I was like, absolutely not. I'm not trying again. I cannot go through this again. I was like, unless you want to talk about trying using a surrogate. And my doctor said, actually, you're an excellent candidate for gestational surrogacy. And when my doctor said that, it was like something just clicked. I was like, okay, I got a plan. So I walked out of the hospital, except for my body was a little more beat up after that second loss. Not because it's hard. It's not, sorry to just be super graphic, but it's not difficult to deliver a 22 week baby like it is to deliver like a full term baby. But I the whole day was a nightmare because I had had that cerclage procedure. So I had to have a procedure to take the cerclage out. And then I had to have the whole induction to, you know, have the baby. No, again, like a lot 
just to have to grieve. Right. You know, exactly. the, the only good yeah. thing about birth is that you get the payoff at the end. That's right, it. Exactly. That's it. Like yeah. for me, that's the only thing. I get a baby at the end. My child comes right. out. Like there's right. no. Right. Right. You when you leave empty handed, it really does feel truly shitty. Um, truly, truly shitty. Um, and so, and that, that was actually one of the main things that was like the hardest is like the hospital has all these pictures of, you know, babies, you know, so they wheel you out of like a delivery room and you're just like looking at all these pictures of babies and you're like, great. And you just come out empty handed. You're like, amazing, amazing. This is great. Uh, like it's pretty terrible. It's pretty awful. It is pretty God awful. Um, and the only reason I can even talk about it is because I have all through it had my daughter to remind me that I'm still a mother and I still have to wake up in the morning and be her mom and be really strong and just give her, you know, be, be the mother that I, that I know I can be. I, I don't, I didn't want, I really didn't want to just like shrink away and be depressed in my bedroom. And like, I had a reason to wake up the next morning and that was to be a mother for her. So like I said, all of this would have been a completely different story if I did not have my daughter. <laughs> she saved me completely. So yeah. Um, yeah, I can imagine. I, yeah, I, I, for those women who are experiencing like multiple miscarriages and they're not a mom yet, it, it makes the, the range of emotions are so oh. much wider because God, you, yeah. I, I can imagine you would just doubt your ability to even be a mom and that it's not meant for you. No, it's just, it happens. Yeah. Yeah. It happens. Totally. And, um, Okay. So continue. So you're on a mission. You're on a mission to find. So I left the hospital on a mission. I was like, I am going to have a baby and it is not going to be like this. And I am not doing this again. And I was like, but we are doing this a different way and I don't care what it takes, but I'm doing it. Um, and so immediately I was on the phone to like my insurance company to figure out my benefits for IVF and like egg retrieval and within, so I lost the baby in late September and by December I was doing egg retrieval and embryo creation, um, at a fertility clinic. Um, and so we got great results. Um, you know, again, I don't, (laughs) don't seem to have a fertility problem. Um, so I, um, we got five embryos out of our, our one retrieval. Oh, that's a, so Um, how many eggs? Uh, so it was such a big drop off. I think I got like 20, it was like 21 eggs, but only 10 of them were mature. Right. Um, And then only five made it to the the blastocyst. Yeah, exactly. So Um, this is the difference between a 30 some year old freezing their eggs. I mean, sorry, retrieving their eggs and like a Uh 40 year old's. No, but I'm 38. I'm 38. Wait. Oh, sorry. Sorry. So when you, you had your egg retrieval, what, how old were you? I had my egg retrieval. I was, I was just, it's just before my 38th birthday. (gasps) Okay. So sorry. My, 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 uh, what's the word? My, my thesis statement there is wrong, but you are fertile, fertile. Well, apparently, but not in some way, <laughs> in some ways. Yes. Right, right, ways, right, right. Not at all. <laughs> um, so definitely like, you know, you win some, you lose some. Um, so I, yeah, we, we, it was very, very, it was a relief, right? Cause yeah, it was 30, it was right before my 38th birthday. And you know, the numbers are not good after 35, you know, they're like, Oh God, like blah, blah, blah. So, um, but you know, getting five was great. I was like, perfect. Hopefully we'd never have to do this again. 
Um, even though it wasn't that bad, I actually didn't mind doing the whole egg retrieval process. I hate to say it, but like after everything I'd been through and all the poking and needles and those shots and those hormones for two weeks, no biggie. I spent a year being in terrible pregnancies and getting no baby out of it. And so the, the egg retrieval process was, was pretty, pretty okay for me. Um, it, it was hard, but you know, it was two weeks and then it was over. Um, so fortunately that part wasn't hard. And then somehow or another, we managed to find a surrogate like really, really quickly. So I did like tons and tons of research because I had like done all my research ahead of time. Um, I started contacting like agencies and using a surrogate as a whole thing. Like it's like a whole, there's so many different aspects to the process and you have to learn a lot and it's just, it's very complicated. So I found a consultant that, um, basically helped me find a, find a surrogate really quickly. So we matched with the surrogate in December and then it took her another month or two to get like a medical clearance because surrogates have to have, they have to meet certain criteria and they have to have some exams done to make sure that they are like sort of physically fit for the job. And the thing that I think is really interesting is that um, you can only be a surrogate if you have had kids already. So you oh. have to have like, yeah. Why? Yep. Why is that? I think both from a mental and a physical um, standpoint, um, they want to know that you can carry a pregnancy and have it be healthy, right? So you have to prove that you've had healthy pregnancies. Um, but also like the whole question about like, is the surrogate going to want to keep the baby, which is kind of like what, what uh, people like tend to like make, put the fear in you about using a surrogate. But in reality, surrogates, are, they already have their own kids. Like they're not having this baby because they want another baby. If they wanted another baby, they would just have one. So they're the motivation, for them yeah. is purely financial. Yeah. I th- I would say it's, I mean, having gotten to know a surrogate now pretty closely, I would say, yeah, it's both financial, but I also think that there is something, they, they're the kind of people that don't mind pre- being pregnant, right? Like they enjoy it. They, they think it feels good, but also I think it's like, they feel like that is their way of being able to help somebody like on a really serious level. So I do think there's like a massive altruistic um, factor that plays in like a person who you wouldn't do it unless you were really doing it for altruistic reasons. And then the financial part is a bonus, right? Like I think it's, you know, right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so, so we got pretty lucky that we found ours pretty quickly and she, and it's like, it's crazy. Cause you don't really know them. Like when you match with them, you meet them over, over zoom for like an hour. And then you have to like decide like after that, like, are you in or are you out? And so you kind of just go like, wow, that's like a big, thing you're like interested they have to live with. in the same areas you two no, or no no they do not they can live anywhere really so my our you know our clinic is in san francisco our embryos are frozen in san francisco and our surrogate lives uh, on the border of georgia and south carolina <gasps> okay so, and so there's there's basically like a hinge for for surrogate you know like no, there's not. So <laughs> like, no, no. So yeah, it. I wish. I wish there was a hinge for for people to find each other. But no, the industry. It is a commercial industry, and it's basically dominated by agencies. So agencies go out and they find surrogates, and then they go. Out, they also go out and find. They're called intended parents, and they match them up, and then you pay. You have to pay the surrogacy, like a, or the agency, the surrogate agency, a huge fee. So for, for that service, and then supposedly they help oversee the process. They help, you know, answer questions and they're kind of there for you during the whole process. So that's what you're paying for. But really what you're paying for is for them to find you a surrogate and match you with one. Um, and, and that's, that's. Okay. Um, do you yeah. mind 
at all telling us generally how much it costs for anybody to, to get a surrogate? Totally. Um, so it, it varies a lot because it depends on a lot of different things. Um, so the bulk of costs in surrogacy, and this is not anything that goes to your, your clinic, your, your clinic for egg retrieval or for the embryo transfer, that's like all separate. But the bulk of the costs in surrogacy are number one, paying your surrogate, but that's not even that's not even half of it. You know, that's like less than half of it is paying really? a surrogate for the, for this. Yeah. The, um, the cost of the agency fee. So the, the, the agency fees, they vary widely. I saw everything from like $20,000 to $50,000, $55,000. So agency fees are pretty steep. Um, and then, um, then another big chunk of it is, is the healthcare. So, um, you have to pay for healthcare for them because we have a, you know, our wonderful American healthcare system. Um, and, and that part is complicated because it depends what kind of health coverage the surrogate has, or if she has any at all. And if she doesn't have it, you have to get it for them. You have to get them a health insurance plan, um, or some kind of insurance to cover all of their medical expenses. So those are like the three major components. There's other little things like there's psych, there's like psychology fees. Like we both have to have psych, psych evaluations. There's a legal part and there's legal fees, but those things are like small. Those are like $5,000, $10,000 things. But the big things are the surrogates, you know, base compensation, the agency fee and um, the healthcare. Okay. So what is a woman receiving for this? for doing this service? I mean, I saw like a big range. I mean, I saw anywhere from $35,000 to $95,000. So okay. it kind of just depends. Um, it, that the, the going rates are, that's, I mean, that's what I saw was anything, but so it's, and the thing is like, I I'm cool with that. Like you want to charge tons to do that's That's right. where I want the money to go. We want right, to pay right, right. it well, you know, it's the other stuff that gets kind of frustrating. You're like, okay. And I got to pay for the, 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 you know, the healthcare and the legal, the, le the legal's fine too. Actually, I don't even mind paying for the legal, but the agency fee that really kills me. And I'm like, yeah, we just need hinge for, for these people. <laughs> we just need a platform to connect these people so that we don't have to rely on agencies. Hey, anybody, agencies. anybody out there, there's an idea for you. If I, if I had more time on my hand, like, you know, yeah, well, actually we don't, idea. we don't know each other very well yet again like we're we're still catching up but i'm the type yeah. of person that's like oh that's a good idea and i'll go do it but um yeah but uh maybe maybe not quite yet on that one but we'll talk, uh, we'll talk. okay okay yeah. so yeah so uh, this lovely woman who lives on the east coast is your surrogate mm -hmm. what is it like yeah. do you talk to her on a regular like what yeah um so yeah so i've got so lucky she's just awesome. Our surrogate is really awesome. Um, and so we didn't really talk until we started the whole process. Like I met her on zoom, we matched and we were like, let's go. So she had all this stuff done. We got the lawyer, we got all the paperwork signed. And that's when like the, the rubber meets the road. You start, she starts, um, injectable medications. Cause you do the embryo transfer the same way you would I a regular IVF cycle. If it was your own or somebody else's, it doesn't make a difference. Um, and so she has to do all those met, all those shots, all those medications leading up to the embryo transfer, same thing as like a regular thing. So she started doing injections. And during that time, like we talked every couple of days and I'd be like, how, how's it going? How are you feeling? And she'd be like, yeah, I'm like a little tired, a little moody, but I'm okay. And she's just like a really good sport. I mean, she knew what she was getting into. So she's just been great. And I just can't even like I, the amount of gratitude and love that I have for this woman is just like off the charts. Like I 
you know, I barely know her, but she's like giving, she is loaning me her body to offload something I desperately do not want to do. And I just feel like there is no amount of money I could pay her. Like that would be enough. And that she's, it's just like, it is worth every penny to me, even though it's costing a fortune. Like it makes me cringe and cry a little bit um, when I think about it, but it is worth every penny, like every penny. (laughs) Honestly, Nina, not to say that it's not a fortune, but I do also mm-hmm. know women who have spent that much in IVF, four rounds, Just, five yeah. rounds, and oh, yeah. they haven't had the baby yet. So honestly, it's like, totally, it, yeah. it's kind of, it, it's kind of equal to those other options as well, depending on what your yeah. issues are. And so has she done this before? No, she, so she has um, an older son. Um, she was a young, she was a young mom and she doesn't want more kids and she, you know, her son's getting older and she was like, yeah, I mean, my son's going to need a car in a couple of years. He's going to need to go to college. Um, and so she's, you know, she's doing this to supplement her income and make some money. And I totally respect that. And she's also very just devoted to the cause. And she, you know, she's been on time to every appointment. She has returned every phone call. She's taken every dose of medication on time. And I just could not be like more in awe of her. (laughs) I mean, I think about the like the nitty gritty of that and like how we have to treat our bodies like temples if it's our own child and you're doing it for somebody else, Mm -hmm. you know? So, I I mean, when it comes to sacrifice, I I cannot imagine doing that myself. And the fact that there are people out there who are like, okay. I mean, if I can put myself in another person's shoes, like, okay, if you think about it, there's not a lot of ways to make 50 to 90,000 extra dollars in a year. Right. Not necessarily. And so if you do want that and you don't mind being pregnant and you generally want to help people, I can see why there (laughs) are some people in that situation who would be like, this, Mm -hmm. this, this makes sense to me. Mm hmm. How yeah, many- I mean, if you, sorry, if you like pregnancy, why not? No, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but like, if you like being pregnant, like, why not? Right? Like, that's a great way to make some extra money and do a good thing for someone. I would love to help somebody on that level. And now that I've needed this kind of help, I like, I'm like, should I donate some eggs? Like, should I? You know, like, I, I am like, how can I give back? You know, like, um, I just, I would love to help somebody on that level. I just can't do it in that way. Um, but. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, it's fine. You know, it's very interesting because I'm going to say this and and everybody around me would be like, no, Carrie, you are generous, but I'm, I'm not generous in an altruistic way. Like uh, (laughs) Chinese immigrant families, which is what my family is. Mm -hmm. We do not, we are not taught. We are not taught any form of altruistic generosity. We are not Mm -hmm. giving 40% of our income to help other families survive. Like you are in survival Mm -hmm. mode. All Mm -hmm. you do is you want to work your hardest and make sure that your family and that your grandchildren, that your children have, have something. And so I was never taught to donate money. I was never taught to like donate clothes, nothing. And I have to say, it sounds terrible, but it makes sense from an immigrant standpoint. Like you don't have any extra things to give. So this, this like idea of altruism is so foreign mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, That's so funny. Yeah. I don't know. 
<laughs> I, I can totally relate to that because so you, you're Chinese American. I'm Jewish. Um, and so they're kind of the same on many, many levels. Right, right, um, right, right. And yeah, you're right. Like, I mean, there's definitely generosity preached in, in Judaism, but it's mainly like you give back to the Jewish community. <laughs> like that's what you, you give to somebody within the tribe, right? Like that's the generosity that is taught to you. Um, and I think, you know, I live in a totally different world where, you know, I'm not, I'm obviously not super religious, but I think a lot of us, even just like, I don't know, Jewish people of my generation, we kind of are sitting, you know, we're more citizens of the world than our parents were. And we're discovering like new ways of generosity. We're living in a different world and we're, you know, the next generation. Um, but I, I totally get what you mean in that, like, you know, before I would have been on this journey, I would have been like, why on earth would anyone ever do that for somebody else? That's just insane. <laughs> I just thought of it as insane. I still sometimes do. But now I believe that it, people do it. I mean, I believe that there are people that, that want to help. So, yeah. Um, so where is she in the pregnancy? So, uh, we, so <laughs> was really annoying because our first embryo transfer failed, which was just a nice little like kick in the ass after everything that I had been through, I had to have a failed embryo transfer as well. Right, and, right, okay. um, and then we were coming up to the second one and this is like, you know, I haven't really talked about this yet, but, um, my doctor recommended that I choose a girl embryo over a boy embryo. So we, we had been kind of heart set on having a boy because both of the two pregnancies that I lost were boys. And in our embryo count, we got two boys and we transferred one of them and it failed. So my doctor said, you know, you've got pretty high quality girl embryos in here. So if you're open to um, making a change, I, I recommend changing a little something. And I was like, huh? Okay. So I thought about that and I was like, you know what? I just don't, give a shit. I just want it to work. I just want this thing to work. Finally, like I don't, I've been waiting long enough. So we chose a girl and we went for the second transfer and it stuck. So our surrogate right now is seven weeks pregnant. We've okay. had one, yeah, one ultrasound and they found a heartbeat. So things are looking pretty good. I know it's still early and we could certainly be faced with yet another miscarriage, but I'm hoping that this is hopefully it. And we're finally going to get this baby <laughs> I've been trying to have for like, it's now been almost two years that we've been, you know, trying to have another baby. And so like, hopefully that's where we're at. And, you know, my surrogate's been great. She's a little nauseous, but nothing terrible. And she's just like loving every minute of it. She's just as excited as I am. And it's just, it's really nice to have like another person kind of along for the ride. Um, and she's over there on the other side of the country. So we text and we have coffee sometimes when we feel like we want to just like spend a little more time together. I'll probably go visit for, you know, some of those important doctor's appointments and such. And then at the end of the day, we'll just go down there when she gets to the end of the pregnancy and, and be there when the baby's born and bring it home. <laughs> so like, that's the plan. Bring her <laughs> home. I mean, that's the best thing about this embryo thing, you know. Yeah. It's yeah, a girl. Yeah. So hopefully, I mean, we'll see. It was still early days, but things are looking good. And it's such the right path for me. Like, I love this path. I can be, I'll be so, I just keep thinking about what kind of mom I'm going to be when the baby just gets handed to me. When just like that woman said to me, I'm going to go for coffee and I'm going to go to the hospital and a baby is going to get handed to me and it's mine. And like, just think about how different it's going to be being just completely in my right mind 
being a healthy, happy person. Right. When that trying baby to recover. comes into Yes. Yeah. 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 I so, mean, yeah. and then also you had all that trouble breastfeeding and you're not even going to have that because. Yeah. Nope. Don't have to even deal with that again. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm like, yeah, this is, this is so interesting from like an intellectual standpoint. Um, I, I literally am going to think about this all day. Like just like the, the societal social, like, or even the psychological part of this is just kind of like a new idea to me. I mean, surrogacy is not new, right? No, no, it isn't. It's becoming way more and more like normal, um, especially when you think about like LGBTQ couples. Like this is kind of like one major option for like gay male couples if they want to use their own genetics. Um, Not to mention like egg and sperm donation has become a lot more common. Um, And it's just sort of like people are needing help to build their families. And I, so the funny thing was like, when I decided to go for a surrogate, like a lot of my friends were like, that's kind of weird, but okay. But like my LGBTQ friends were like, Hey, like, welcome to the party. Like we've been living here for like ever. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, so it's like, you know, it's just, it's just part of how families are made. I've really like come to terms with like, you know, now that all this crap has happened to me, people tell me everything. People tell me everything. So I've had people tell me, you know, my child was made with a donor egg or I've like, you know, people are just telling me these amazing stories that I never would have heard before. And I'm like, wow, we all need help. People need help making families. Like this is just the way you do it. This is how you do it. If you're lucky enough. So, yeah. Okay. Here's the other thing. Okay. So last night I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty pissed off about the Roe versus Wade situation. Yeah, in this country. I'm, I'm really pissed off right now. Last night I listened to a podcast that had a constitutional law professor talking about the actual weakness of the actual Roe versus Wade decision back 50 years ago. Basically that it didn't have weak in the fact that the states, it was going against what 49 states had laws already Mm -hmm. versus Mm -hmm. he said contraception actually is very, very much, based in common law amongst the states. So actually, if it were go to go to the Supreme Court, there's a lot of more legal standing for the the right to concept contraceptives from a constitutional law perspective. And I'm a poli sci major. So I'm listening to this guy. I'm already going into it pissed off because he's telling me he's an originalist, but he's also liberal. He's also um, like a, a liberal left leaning believes he's pro choice. Mm-hmm. Pro- Pro all the things pro equality and mm-hmm. and it's it's a long podcast but he was basically saying from a legal standpoint what you want to do is have is have it in the amendments that we have equality versus yes. privacy rights because Roe versus yes. Wade is a privacy argument it's not yes an equality yes. argument yes right um, mm-hmm. but yeah, the, I mean yeah go no go ahead go ahead No, I was just going to say, I mean, like that, yes, that is the question, but like, obviously, like you don't dismantle the privacy argument before you've established the, um, the The equality equality argument. Why, why would you do that? So anyway, please continue. Well, it's, it's the, it's the, um, it's the repercussions of this 
very, very like, yes, constitutional law from a, you know, if you're, you're sitting in a, in a lecture, it's very intellectually interesting, but the repercussions of dismantling it before there is equality within our constitution, like true equality is so problematic. But what your story makes me think of is I cannot imagine living in both of us live on the west coast we've got tons of protection over here we probably get in california have more protection now than we did six months ago because gavin newsom is like we're we're super lucky we're We're super super lucky lucky, right yeah yeah Uh, just to have protection to have these discussions and, and these decisions within your family structure not not I mean, it's disgusting, not just the government, but in Texas there, you know, I think the law already states in Texas that if you suspect that your neighbor is trying to find out how to have an abortion, cross state lines to have an abortion, you can tattletale on them and get money for it. Yeah, that's so messed up. You can you can make $10,000 by tattletaling on your neighbor because you think. And then there goes into the whole thing of if you have a miscarriage, uh, can, can somebody say, well, I actually think you had abortion, so we're going to start to prosecute you. Like, it's it's disgusting. It's, it's, yeah, it opens the door, yes, to other states having their own laws. And in theory, and in political theory, constitutional law theory, yes, it would be better if each state did what California did and protected even more than Roe v. Wade, because Roe v. Wade's you know, most scholars will say it was a it was a it was a weak decision. It should be stronger. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking about your situation. A lot of other states are talking about, you know, outlawing IVF. Uh, like, like, yeah. are they pro-life? Because yeah, <laughs> I don't understand. Like, why? Yeah. When I think about it, I'm like, it's a whole, the, the, when I think about my situation, right, this is very much a conversation about bodily autonomy. So obviously pro-choice means you have the power to make decisions over your own body. And the fact that my surrogate can decide for herself, that she wants to be a surrogate. She can decide that she wants to use her body for this purpose. That's also like a form of pro-choice. And so I, yeah, my specific situation is just, I am so grateful that the choices exist for me and for her to be able to do that. And it's, we can't take them for granted because they are so fragile, um, in this, in this political climate that we live in and how quickly those choices can just be taken away. Um, and how just ridiculous and stupid that is. So uh, yeah, I guess I just, um, well, and the complicatedness of it, the complicatedness and the nuance, because like, for example, let's just say there are women all over the world doing this, right? There are women all over the country doing this. Let's just say you live in California, but your surrogate, you happen to find a surrogate who lives in Texas. The laws are completely different there. Like, how does that yeah. work? Does anybody yep. think this through? Like, mm-hmm. I, I yeah. know that Biden uh, signed the executive executive uh, action to say that. Um, it is protected by executive action, which is very weak legally, I think. And then also uh, the House just passed, which doesn't mean anything until the Senate passed it, but the Women's Health Protection Act today, I think. And then also the, 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 um, the protection to be able to travel. The thing is, we're thankful that we live in California, which is one of the most progressive, progressive 
places, legally speaking, for, you know, abortion, also for surrogacy, all these things. We're super lucky. But that pro-life movement, is they are not done yet. Like, they are absolutely not done yet. They are coming for all of us. They are coming for, you know, a constitutional, uh, like, abolishing of abortion in the entire country, which they could it could do. It's real. Like the, with the way the federal government is operating right now, like it could totally happen. Um, and that's basically terrifying. Um, and all I have to like rely on is just that, you know, we are the majority, actually, those of us who do not want that we live in the majority and, um, pe- there's people out there that care even more than you. And I mean, I care a lot and you care a lot, but there's people who care even more and they, they're out there and we're all out there and we can't, yeah, we just have to, we just have to make a lot of noise as much as we can. Um, but yeah, we'll see where it goes. It's, it's pretty terrifying. And I'm, I'm not leaving California. <laughs> Definitely not for, for now. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And it's, and it's scary to know that if you have a college kid and they go to college in a different state that doesn't have the same protections and rights, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. There's a lot of repercussions that come. And then I'll, Nina, I hope you have time for this rant because I know we're way past our our hour, but grateful you were here to help me deal with my feelings this morning (laughs) because no, it's like been very top of mind. And every time I have a conversation that is this complex, oh, are you done being, she, she'll tell me when she, she did really good. She gave me, yeah, she gave me like, whoa, almost an hour and a half. So what I'll do (laughs) is I'll take the part about your life before this and I'll put it in like the end uh, as like a outtake so people can get to the meat of our conversation. But Nina, I thank you so much for for being, um, just sh- sharing your story because it is uh, it is not common necessarily, but it's also not rare. No, it is ridiculous. Yeah. And it's certainly something that is way more nuanced than is possible for any like legislate legislative body to like legislate against like it's ridiculous that we would leave people to write laws about it who are not like medical professionals um because the nuance there that you're talking about of like you know miscarriage and sort of terminations that are needed to save lives and and terminate i mean there's they're all reason all the reasons to terminate are fine in my book right um you know none of us want um, you know, a perfectly happy, healthy person who's capable of raising a nice child to abort it. But none of us want that, but we can all support, we can all get behind. It's none of our business. It's none of our business why it has to happen. So that's the thing is like all these things, even about exceptions for rape and incest and whatever, all that does is subject a woman to, you know, more just scrutiny when you could just be like, look, it's not your business why she needs an abortion. It's none of anybody's business except for a woman. And it could be between a woman and her doctor. And that's all you need. You don't need laws at play to decide when it's okay to have an abortion because the people who wrote the laws are not experts in this at all. And they should not be dabbling where they don't belong. So, I mean, that's, yeah. I love it. And what I'll do is we'll do a check-in with you like in a year or something, probably when it comes to being on the podcast to, to tell us how, you know, the end of the story, because people will be waiting with bated breath to find out uh, the, the end, you know, the second half of your, you know, your multi-chaptered 
birth stories. I really appreciate you having me. Um, I've been like listening to your podcast for, you know, as long as it's been in existence. And some of the episodes have been like very, very emotionally life-saving to me. So I just, I feel kind of honored to be here. Um, and I'm just very like, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, anytime. All right, Nina, thank you so much for sharing your story. It is certainly so personal and uh, really appreciate you. I think that the listeners out there will get a lot of benefit from it. And my listeners, I actually chopped this up into two because we talked forever and we caught up. So I'm just going to leave that for you here in an outtake, a little bit lengthy outtake where we're just catching up and talking about our dance lives and aerial lives. Uh, If you want to continue listening uh, to Nina a little bit more, again, uh, check the show notes for those three uh, resources for you, uh, our rehab, the mini course, and the flagship course that is if you're looking for something comprehensive and that you can take from anywhere. And, uh, you know, I'd love to be your teacher. So check it out there in the show notes. And um, yeah, if you'd honor me with a five-star rating and a review, where you get your podcast, I will love you forever. I appreciate you for being here. Um, And uh, I hope to talk to more of you sometime in the near future. Uh, Have a great week. This is The Expecting Aerialist. Nina, tell us a little yeah. bit about yourself. Yeah. And then um, um, we'll get into this sure. uh, new journey that you're doing. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's like, there's so much to say, right? There's been a lot of years <laughs> since I was 18 and, you know, taking dance classes in LA, um, which was very much, you know, my, I was, I was actually a student at the time. I was like a college student at the Claremont colleges, but it was just not really, um, vibing for me. So I spent a lot of my energy just in LA, like taking class and dancing as much as I could. Um, and then I, um, just wanted to kind of get out. I was from California and I wanted to just do other things with my life. Um, and wasn't really feeling school. It's a long story, but you know, I had been in boarding school for high school and just didn't really care to continue like focusing on studies. Um, and so I, um, I left school and I got a working holiday, like work visa in Australia. And I moved to Australia for six months. Um, and at the end of the six months, I did not want to leave. So I ended up staying for five years <laughs> all up. Um, and while I was in Australia, I did a lot of um, dancing and a lot of actually teaching. I taught dance a lot in Australia. Um, I found I kind of carved out a really nice niche of people who were kind of just um, both like they were dance teachers, recreational dancers. Um, and I, I kind of introduced them to the world of lyrical cause lyrical didn't really exist at the time in Australia. Like they had like their most kind of progressive dance form that they had was hip hop. Like they were doing pretty interesting stuff in hip hop and it was really cool. And so I kind of got into that as well, but also like there was no, there was no like lyrical or like contemporary jazz, like that stuff that, you know, like you and I love. Um, so I, I started like, I started like, you know, choreographing for some student showcases and then also just did a lot of teaching and just found a really nice community of dancers. And then towards the end of my time in Australia, I kind of got, that's when I started doing aerial was really like the end of my time in Australia. I was like kind of hungry for something new. I was, I was just, 
I wanted a, like a new challenge. And so I just started taking silks at um, a space there. I don't even know if it exists anymore. It probably does. It's, um, I don't even remember what it's called. It's called, uh, I can't remember. Anyway, uh, that's the first place that I took classes. And I just started out doing it once a week, right? Kind of probably my last year in Australia. Um, and then should I just keep going with like my life story? Oh, I want to hear it. I will, <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I will interject. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so yeah, so I started there and I was just doing silks like once a week. Um, so let's just say I was terrible. I couldn't do anything. Ariel is definitely not something that I have any natural ability for. Um, it was convenient to have all that dance background, but at the same time, I did not have the right kind of strength at all. Um, and let's just say like the basics of Ariel took me like a long time to like really be able to do like just things like a nice inversion and, uh, that stuff just came very slowly for me. (laughs) Um, so, um, and because I was only, I started out at once a week, it wasn't really doing much. So, um, when I left Australia, it was around 2009, 2010, And, um, I had no plan. I just was, you know, finishing up my visa was expiring and I landed back here in the States in San Francisco with no plan. It was also the height of the recession. There were no jobs for anyone. Yeah. What what Um, year was that? What year was that? that You know, 2000. So I finished school 2008, the end of 2008. And so I moved back, I moved to San Francisco in the beginning of 2009. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like nothing, like no plan, couldn't find a job anywhere. And then basically I, I ended up working in a restaurant. I was a waitress and that's when I actually did a lot of aerial training. I like started to like train, you know, more like three times a week instead of just once. So I like ended up getting, I worked with this teacher at, um, I want to, I don't, why don't I know the names of any of these spaces? I'm getting old. So it's like, <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was okay. it's like the main training space in San Francisco. I want to say it's called like the circus center or San Francisco circus center or something like that. And it's still there today, I believe. Um, and it was awesome. And I trained with this amazing teacher um, named Marina who um, just, I love the way she taught and she was such, um, such an amazing technician. So her classes, instead of like, Nowadays, I go to class and people are like, okay, here's a really hard trick and we're going to teach you a really hard trick. Her classes were more like very foundational in terms of like, she'd be like, I'm going to show you three ways to get into like, you know, a same side knee hook and three ways to get into an opposite side knee hook and three ways to come out of it. And three, like, like just very like every, the, the way every trick starts and ends, she would sort of teach the really the fundamentals Um, so good oh my god I loved it I loved it um and so you know you know here we would spend the spend the the first half of class here's three different ways to get into an s-wrap and here's three different ways to get out of an s-wrap like I just like ate it up um it was very much for me because I think my even just as a dancer I've always been like all about the fundamentals all about just like being doing everything correctly as opposed to just like teach me a trick because there's so many classes you just go to and it's just like yeah oh my God, there's this really hard trick. And then like, you see all these beginners going to classes and then they just like hop up and do really hard tricks. And I'm like, really? Like that doesn't sit right with me. So, um, so that's kind of was my training in San Francisco. Um, that was just wonderful. Um, and then after living in San Francisco for a year and a half, I 
followed uh, the boyfriend at the time to Montreal um, because he had got laid off his job recession, you know, um, and then took a job in Montreal. And I was like, I want to go there. There's cool stuff happening there. I don't have a job. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a waitress. So followed the ex-boyfriend to Montreal. We did not last um, long at all, (laughs) but I ended up really liking Montreal and I stayed there for um, about 18 months, somewhere between 18 months and two years. Um, and I took a lot of classes there and I really like that city is just glorious. Especially Dude, for Nina, that is one, yeah. I mean, besides the circus situation, because when I was there, I wasn't even doing circus. I remember being in that city and just, it was me single, same thing, right? I just, mm-hmm. just, it was a perfect day. It was like sunny mm-hmm. enough yeah. And then, but it was cold. It was like 30 degrees and I was walking around my oh, winter yeah. coat yeah. and it just, the flurries just started floating down. This is what I remember <laughs> from the sky. And then I popped yeah. into a cafe and had a hot espresso looking Ugh. at the snow. snow. And then I walked yeah. around for like five hours in this like, and then, you know, ended up in like the most busy part of the shopping area, like with the snow, like sticking to the ground. Mm-hmm. This is my memory of Montreal and, and like yeah. feeling like you're not anywhere close to America or Canada because it's French speaking. One of the best yeah. cities in the world. If you ask me like glorious. Definitely, yeah, definitely one of the top cities in North America. I'd say if not the top city in North America um, for just like everything. I like how, it's just because it's like, because of their terrible weather, the cost of living is just cheaper there. So young creative people, both from North America and from Europe tend to go there, especially because it's like this bilingual culture, English and French. Um, and so people just kind of tend to go there cause it's cheap. And if, and then they can do their, you know, they can paint their pictures and sing right, their songs right, right, do their right. aerial, um, for cheap. Um, and it, it's just, I, I hope it's still like that because I mean, it's been years since I've been there. It was years ago that I lived there. I want to say it was 20, 2011 ish 2010, 2011. Um, and I just, it was just a lovely time in my life. Um, you know, young, single, no children. Um, and the weather, I, again, being from California, that snow is, uh, you know, it's a lot, but it's also kind of magical when you haven't grown up with it. Right. Um, so yeah, I just, I love that city. Um, I had a blast and I, and I did a ton of aerial, not, I, you know, I've never really like done more than, you know, like student showcases and such, um, and taking classes, but it was just great. And I feel like the people who are teaching there are so good. You know, they've been to like Canada's national circle circus school. A lot of them have like, you know, toured with Cirque du Soleil because their headquarters is there. And so it's every, a lot of North American like aerialists, like will base themselves there because Cirque du Soleil auditions all of their shows there. Um, and so it's just, it's just really, it was just really great for that. Um, I loved it. And the place that I did a lot of training at was just like this really cute little, um, it's called, uh, La Cazarne. And it's, it was basically like a community center that some people turned into an aerial training space, but it still operated like a community center. So it was like, you know, they had, you know, events and babysitting and like, whatever, just like stuff that the community provides to the community. And it was just really, really sweet because it was in, you know, it turned into this aerial space and it was just really, really a nice place to train. Um, so yeah, so I did that. Um, and then let's see, where are we now? Um, then I ended up moving to New York. So the boyfriend and I broke up 
was I had family in New York and I was like, I should probably try to get a job. A friend of mine kind of was like, Hey, I think you might be good at this job. Like, what do you think? Do you want to move to New York and come work for this tech company? Um, and I was like, yeah, that sounds like the right thing to do at my ripe age of, I don't know, whatever I was, 28, 29, I should probably get a, get a job and, um, do some things. So, so I moved to New York, um, and I, you know, continued to do aerial just again, training, but I had a harder time in New York. It was not as friendly. I didn't think, uh, it's better now. I think it's gotten better, but at the time there just weren't a lot of spaces and the spaces that were there, which it was brutally expensive to take class and didn't really jive with a lot of teachers. So it took me a couple of years to like find my way back into aerial there. So I spent a couple of years just, you know, doing the New York thing, working, going out for lots of dinners, you know, being a New York city, young, late 20 somethings. Um, and, um, yeah. And then, you know, Ariel picked up again, kind of midway through, I found some spaces that I liked and teachers that I liked. So I just kind of continued it. But, um, eventually I got pregnant Well, I met my current partner. He, I never know what to call him cause we're not married, but we have a kid together. We own a yeah, house. We no, I, married. <laughs> no, I, um, I'm the, I'm the same me and my partner are not married, but like way more committed than, well, I was right. married that, that was so uh-huh. easy to get divorced. Like Splitting okay. this up would be way harder because we have worse, yeah. property, we have a kid, like you can't really, yeah, yeah, I call him my partner, I call him baby daddy, I call him okay. the, my dude. <laughs>